0: Evening. You, my little phantom, are listening to Fantasmic, hosted by none other than myself, Lady Lillian McCall. Tonight, I intend to cast uh, a spell for your attention, so I do hope that you'll enjoy these three magically scary stories. Otherwise, I may just need to practice more. <laughs> Our first story is actually a bit of a classic. Some of you may already be familiar with the legend of Baba Yaga, but for those who aren't, Baba Yaga is a figure in Slavic folklore. She is often described as being either a sole individual or as part of a trio of sisters that share the same name. And she's usually depicted as a quote-unquote deformed and or ferocious looking woman, according to her wiki page. Her character is rather multifaceted, leaving many to speculate her ambiguous nature and if she's even that bad or not. This tale I found on Story Nori actually does a wonderful job portraying that. Shall I? Somewhere in the eastern part of Europe, where it gets bitterly cold in winter, there's a dark forest. If you're ever brave, foolish, or ignorant enough to go wandering through that forest, there's a good chance that you might come across a peculiar house. It's a wooden hut, but it's like no other that you've ever seen, for it stands on giant chicken legs, and quite often it walks about just like a monstrous farmyard bird. This hut is the home of Baba Yaga. I don't advise that you knock on the door of Baba Yaga's hut, no matter how much you have lost your way through the forest, for Baba Yaga is a witch. On the edge of Baba Yaga's forest, there's a little village, and everyone who lives there knows about the strange hut and the lady who lives inside it. They know her, and they fear her, for it has long been rumored that she likes to eat children. A long time ago, a man lived in this village with his beautiful daughter, who was called Vasilisa. The girl's mother had sadly died some years before the start of the story. Before she died, she gave Vasilisa a wonderful gift. It was a little rag doll that did not look so different from any other. The girl's mother told Vasilisa that she should take special care of the doll. Every night she must feed it a little milk with a little biscuit, and so long as she did so, the doll would always be ready to help her, no matter how much trouble she found herself in. Vasilisa did just as her mother bid her. Every night, the little rag doll sat up and drank a little milk and ate a little biscuit before smiling at Vasilisa and then going back to sleep. As time went by, the girl's father decided to marry again. His second wife had two daughters of her own, neither of whom could touch Vasilisa for beauty or sweetness of character, in fact. They were so jealous of Vasilisa that they hated her terribly. So long as Vasilisa's father remained at home, the stepmother and stepsisters had to pretend that they liked her. But every now and again, one of the sisters would whisper in Vasilisa's ear, Just you wait until dear Papa leaves us alone with you. Then you'll see. When Vasilisa had recently passed her 16th birthday, her father said that he had to go away on a journey that would last at least a month. Vasilisa begged him to take her with him. But he just left and said he was traveling on business and the girl would find the journey tiresome and dull. The first night after the father had left, the stepmother gathered the three girls together in the parlor and spoke as such. Now, my dears, I have a little task for each of you. Tanya, that was the oldest. Go in my room, please, my dear, and sew a button on my red dress. Katya, the youngest. Go to the kitchen table and roll some pastries so that it's nice and flat. "'And, Vasilisa, dear, go to Baba Yaga's hut in the forest and ask her to lend us some lights. "'Now, run along, sweetheart. Don't waste any time. "'We don't want you to get caught in the dark now, do we?' "'The stepmother shooed Vasilisa out of the house so fast that she hardly had time to put on her hat and gloves. "'She walked forlornly to the corner of the street and took the little doll out of her coat pocket where it had been sleeping. "'Oh, little doll,' she said. My mother told me that if I fed and looked after you, you'd be ready to help me if I was ever in trouble. Well, I've fed and looked after you. Now I'm in terrible trouble, and I must go see Baba Yaga. Everyone knows that she is a dreadfully wicked wretch, so please tell me. What am I to do? The little doll looked up at Vasilisa and said, Be as brave as you are beautiful. Go to Baba Yaga's hut and no harm will come to you. Vasilisa mustered up all her courage and walked down the path that led through the woods to the hut of Baba Yaga. After a while, the young girl heard the sound of galloping hooves coming up behind her, and she stepped off the road to let a horse ridden by a rider in a blazing red cloak shoot past her. I wonder who that was, thought Vasilisa before setting off on her way once more. A little further on, she once again heard the sound of galloping hooves, and this time a rider in a cloak of dazzling white sped past her and down the road that led to Baba Yaga's hut. Sometime later, a third horse shot by. Its rider wore a cloak that was as black as midnight. After about an hour of walking, Vasilisa came to the clearing in the forest. Although it was now getting quite dark, she had no trouble seeing, for this neck of the woods was lit up by skulls with blazing eyes. The skulls were mounted on top of a high fence. Beyond the fence, she saw the strange hut that stood on the chicken legs. It turned around to face her, and it seemed to Vasilisa that the hut was looking at her. Then the chicken legs began to kneel, and the hut lowered to the ground. The door creaked open. Baba Yaga's nose was so long and bony that it appeared through the door before the rest of her. A moment or two later, the nose was followed by a tall, skinny old woman, holding a broomstick. Vasilisa was so frightened that her legs would not obey her when she told them to run. The old lady came towards her, but she did not walk. Her feet flew just inches above the ground. Well, child, she said, "the can't get your tongue, or are you just badly brought up. Speak, child. Spit out your name and your business here. "'I haven't got all night to have her around while you tremble and gibber like an idiot.'" For a few moments, Vasilisa's lips quivered so much that no proper words would come out of her mouth, just a kind of, uh... But she then remembered the doll's words that no harm would come to her, and eventually she found courage to speak clearly. "'Good ma'am,' she said. "'It is only me, little Vasilisa.' my stepmother sent me to the forest to borrow a light from Baba Yaga. Did she now? said Baba Yaga thoughtfully. Well, I am Baba Yaga, but you may call me Babushka. Vasilisa brightened a little at this, for Babushka Mm. is a kindly name that means grandma. Baba Yaga went on. Now, come with me into my hut. I'll Mm. give you some simple tasks to do. If you're not lazy and you complete your work like a good girl, I'll... Give you the light that you ask for and let you go free. But if you do not manage these simple tasks, I shall cook you in my oven and eat you for my dinner. (laughs) She cackled. How do you like that for an offer? To tell you the truth, Vasilisa did not like it at all. But she had faith that all would be well, that she would complete the tasks and return with the light. And so she curtsied and said, I like it well, dear Babushka and she followed the old lady as she floated back to the door of her hut and called out, Locks! Unlock! The doors creaked open and then shut again behind Vasilisa as she stepped inside. The hut was surprisingly roomy, but a large part of it was taken up by a huge oven. Vasilisa had to hold in a scream because the house started to rise up on its chicken legs and move about. She realized that there would be no escape unless Baba Yaga let her go. The witch sat down at the table and gestured to the larder. "'Fetch me my supper, dear,' she said. "'Yes, babushka,' replied Vasilisa. She brought her over some bread and cheese for the old lady. "'Ah, well,' said Baba Yaga, "'soon I shall be enjoying a nice plate of roast meat, thinly sliced and pink in the middle.' <laughs> With those words, she pinched Vasilisa's arm. "'Now tomorrow, my dear, you must complete my little task. "'When I am away from the hut, you must tidy the yard, "'clean the hut, and cook pumpkin soup for dinner. "'Can you manage that?' Why, yes, Babushka, I can," said Vasilisa, who was relieved that the task did not sound by any means beyond her ability. That is good, said Baba Yaga, and when you have finished doing that, you can sort out all the kitchen pots and pans. Baba Yaga ate her bread and cheese and drank a tankard of frothy brown ale before falling asleep on top of a thick fir which was strewn above the stove, the warmest place in the hut. The hut continued to move around, and Vasilisa felt queasy. She certainly had no appetite herself, but before she lay down for the night, she did not forget to feed her doll a few crumbs of bread and some drops of milk. When the rag doll had finished her supper, Vasilisa asked her, Oh dear, what have I done? How shall I ever get out of here? The doll replied, Have courage and keep faith, and all will be well, for Baba Yaga is unable to tell a lie, and she is bound to keep her promise. The next morning, Baba Yaga arose from her bed on top of the stove and drank another tankard of ale before flying up the chimney and onto the roof. Vasilisa looked out of the window and saw the witch flying away above the trees, but this time she was riding what looked like a giant mortar, a giant pestle was what the old lady was holding in her hand and using as a rudder to guide her flight. Vasilisa gazed at the witch until she was out of sight and then she started to clean and cook. She managed to get everything spick and span to get the soup on the cooker by midday, but now she faced an impossible task. How could she possibly pick the black peas out of the sack of white ones? Why, there must have been thousands, if not millions of peas in the sack. She heard a noise outside the hut. Oh, Baba Yaga must be back early. Now I'm done for, she exclaimed. But when she looked out of the window, she saw not Baba Yaga, but the white horseman who had overtaken her on her way to the hut. He galloped around the fence of the compound and then was off again into the woods. Vasilisa sighed and wished that he would only come and rescue her, whoever he might be. Then, when she turned around from the window, she saw that all the peas had been sorted into two piles, one black and one white. Her task was done. That evening, after Baba Yaga flew back home from whatever business she had been on, The old witch could not hide her surprise at all that her guest had managed to achieve the task in one day. I see that you're a good little worker, my dear, she said. Well, in that case, tomorrow you can make pea soup and fetch water from the stream to fill up the tank. Here, use this bucket. What she handed to Vasilisa was not a bucket, but a sieve, and the poor girl wondered how she would ever manage to use it to fetch water. Still that night, when the little ragdoll urged her not to feel despair, she knew in her heart that something wonderful might happen to help her. And it did, for as she stood by the stream holding the sieve in her hand, the red horseman rode by, took it from her, and swept over to the hut where he hurled it through the open window. When Vesalisa returned, she found that the tank was filled with fresh water. That evening, Baba Yaga dipped her bony finger in the tank and tasted a drop of the fresh water. She said, Indeed, you are a hard-working girl. Let's see if you are clever, too. Tonight, you can stay up and count the number of stars in the sky. If you tell me the right number in the morning, you can take your light and go free. But if you answer it wrong, even if you tell me one star too many or too few, then I shall have you for my breakfast. That night, Vasilisa gazed out of the window at the sky and tried to count the stars. One, two, three, four, five. But by the time that she reached a hundred stars, she was no longer sure whether or not she was counting the same ones again, and she had to start all over again. It did not help that the hut kept moving around so that the view kept on changing. Eventually, Vasilisa began to sob quietly. She took out her doll and said, Dear little doll, who will come to the aid of poor little Vasilisa this time. You cannot guess the number of stars in the sky, and in the morning the witch will surely eat me. Do not worry, said the doll. Have courage and keep faith, and all will be well. And it was, for at the midnight hour, the black horseman came riding up to the window where Vasilisa was sitting, and he whispered a number to her as if in a dream. It was a very big number, but I cannot tell you what it was, for it's a secret. But it was the exact number of the stars in the sky that he told her. And in the morning, when Baba Yaga stepped with her bony legs onto the floor, Vasilisa said, Good morning, Babushka. Shall I tell you the number of the stars now? Baba Yaga yawned and said, Go on, child, tell me. But you had better not be wrong, for if you are, I shall eat you. Vasilisa told the number to Baba Yaga, who let out a terrible cry, like Her eyes blazed like those of the skulls on the fence surrounding her hut. Who told you that? She demanded so fiercely that Vasilisa sank back. Baba Yaga picked up a plate and threw it across the room so that it smashed against the wall. Then she picked up a knife, and Vasilisa was sure she meant to kill her. But Babushka, she said. You promised that if I told you the number correctly, I could take a light and go free. Baba Yaga froze for a moment, and the fierce glare of her eyes lessened somewhat. Ah, yes, she said more calmly. So I did. I suppose it was morning and day that helped you with the other task I said to you. Vasilisa nodded, for she now understood that the three horsemen were morning, day, and night. Then you are a good girl, said Baba Yaga. Or if morning day and night choose to help you that means that your spirit is in harmony with the universe and I will do you no harm Wait here while I go on my business I have no tasks for you today Tonight you shall return home with a light That evening after Baba Yaga flew home on her mortar she took Vasilisa out into the courtyard and gave her one of the skulls with blazing eyes Take this she said "'It will light up your stepmother and your two stepsisters very well.' "'Vasilisa took the skull and returned back down the path to her village. "'She expected that her stepmother would have found a light by now, "'but in fact the house was not lit. "'Instead, her relatives were sitting in complete darkness. "'She stepped into the house. "'The skull lit up the inside as bright as day. "'I'm home,' called out Vasilisa but she received no reply, for as soon as the light fell upon her stepmother and sisters, they turned to dust. Vasilisa went to live with a kindly old lady in the village until her father returned from his business. When he came back, he thought that his wife and stepdaughters must have run away. He did not miss them much. He lived happily with his beautiful daughter, Vasilisa, until one day a prince came riding by and caught sight of her. She was the most beautiful girl he had ever seen, he had no hesitation in asking her to marry him, which she did, and they lived happily ever after. Uh, we love a happy ending from time to time, especially one that involves the death of the ones who wrung our protagonists. I think the moral of this old classic, well, actually no, I think there's two morals that can be learned from this one. One, no matter how bad things may get, So long as you stay true to yourself and treat the world with kindness, you'll be able to tough anything out. And two, you must also accept help from time to time in order to get through in life. This does tie into the first moral in my opinion, but it's one that even I need a reminder of from time to time, so here I am, verbalizing it to let everyone who needs to hear it know. It's okay to ask for help that said, it's time to move on to our next story. (laughs) This one comes from a personal favorite collection of mine that I'm sure some of you may have already heard of before. The Book of the Thousand Nights and One Night, aka The Thousand and One Nights. Well, if you haven't heard of this collection of stories yet, then allow me to introduce you. Quote, The story collection known as The Thousand and One Nights has long been considered a treasure house of literary styles and genres. Not surprising, because it was compiled over a period of several centuries, and it incorporates material from Arab, Persian, Turkish, Greek, and Indian sources. End quote. Tonight, I'll be reading the tale of the merchant and the genie. Was once a merchant who had substance and traded largely in foreign countries. One day, as he was riding through a certain country, where he had gone to collect what was due to him, there overtook him the heat of the day, and presently he aspired to a garden before him. So he made towards it for shelter and delighting, sat down under a walnut tree by a spring of water. Then he put his hand to his saddlebags, and took out a cake of bread and a date, and ate them, and threw away the date stone. When, behold, There started up before him a gigantic afferent, with a naked sword in his hand, who came up to him and said, Arise, that I may slay thee, even as thou hast slain my son. How did I slay thy son? asked the merchant, and the genie replied, When thou threwest away the daystone, it smote my son, who was passing at the time, on the breast, and he died forthright. When the merchant heard this, he said, Verily, we are gods, and to him we return. There is no power, no virtue, but in God, the Most High, the Supreme. If I killed him, it was by misadventure, and I prithee pardon me. But the genie said, There is no help for it, but I must kill thee. Then he seized him, and, throwing him down, raised his sword to strike him, whereupon the merchant wept and said, I commit my fear to God, and recited the following verses. Fate has two days, untroubled one, the other lowering, and life two parts, the one content and the other sorrowing. Say unto him that haunteth us with fortune's perfidy, at whom but those whose heads are high doth fate its arrows fling. If at the hands of time have made their plaything of our life, till for its long protracted kiss ill hap upon us spring, dost thou not see the hurricane? What time the wild winds blow? Smite down the stately trees alone and spare each lesser thing. Lo, in the skies there are many stars. No one can tell their tale, but to the sun and moon alone eclipse brings darkening. The earth bears many a pleasant herb and many a plant and tree, but none is stoned save only those to which the fair fruit cling. Look on the sea and how the waves float up upon the foam, but in its deepest depths of blue pearls have sojourning. Cut short thy speech, said the genie, for by Allah there is no help for it that I must kill thee. Know, O Afrit, replied the merchant, that I have a wife and children, and much substance, and I owe debts and whole pledges, so let me return home, and give every one his due, and I vow by all that is most sacred that I will return to thee at the end of the year that thou mayest do with me as thou will, and God as witness of what I say. Genie accepted his promise and released him, whereupon he returned to his well and place and paid his debts and settled all his affairs. Moreover, he told his wife and children what had happened and made his last dispositions, and tarried away with his family till the end of the year. Then he rose, and made his appellation, and took his winding sheet under his arm, and bidding his household and kinsfolk and neighbors farewell, set out, much against his will, to perform his promise to the genie, whilst his family set up a great noise of crying and lamentation. He journeyed on till he reached the garden, where he had met with the genie, on the first day of the new year, and there sat down to await his doom. Presently, as he sat weeping over what had befallen him, there came up an old man, leading a gazelle by a chain, and saluted the merchant, saying, What ails thee to sit alone in this place, seeing us the resort of the jinn?" The merchant told him all that had befallen him with the afrit, and he wondered and said, By Allah, O my brother, thy good faith is exemplary, and thy story is marvellous one. If it were graven with needles on the corners of the eye, It would serve as a warning to those who can profit by example. Then he sat down by his side, saying, By Allah, O my brother, I will not leave them till I see what befalls thee with this effort. So they sat conversing, and fear and terror got hold upon the merchant, and trouble increased upon him, notwithstanding the old man's company. Presently, another old man came up, leading two black dogs, and saluting them, inquired why they sat in a place known to be haunted by jinn whereupon the merchant repeated his story to him he had not sat along with them when there came up a third man leading a dappled she-mule and after putting to them the same question and receiving a like answer sat down with them to await the issue of the affair they had sat but a little while longer when behold there arose a cloud of dust and a great whirling column approached from the heart of the desert then the dust lifted and discovered the genie with a drawn sword in his hand and sparks of fire issuing from his eyes. He came up to them and dragged the merchant from amongst them, saying, "Rise, that I may slay thee as thou slewest my son, the darling of my heart." Whereupon the merchant wept and bewailed himself, and the three old men joined their cries and lamentations to his. Then came forward the first old man, he of the gazelle, and kissed the affer's hand and said to him, O genie, and crown of the kings of the djinn, if I relate to thee my history with this gazelle, and it seem to be wonderful, wilt thou grant me a third of this merchant's blood? Yes, O old man, answered the genie. If thou tell me thy story, and I find it wonderful, I will remit to thee a third of his blood. Then said the old man, Know, O Afrit, that this gazelle is the daughter of my father's brother, and my own flesh and blood. I married her whilst she was yet of tender age and lived with her nearly thirty years without being blessed with a child by her. So I took me a concubine and had by her a son like the rising full moon, with eyes and eyebrows of perfect beauty. And he grew up and flourished till he reached the age of fifteen, when I had occasion to journey to a certain city and set out thither with great store of merchandise. Now my wife had studied sorcery and magic from her youth, so, I being gone, she turned my son into a calf, and his mother into a cow, and delivered them both to the cowherd. And when, after a long absence, I returned from my journey, and inquired after my son and his mother, my wife said to me, Thy slave died, and her son ran away, whether I know not. I abode for the space for a year, mournful-hearted and weeping-eyed, till the coming of the greater festival. Then I said to the herdsman, and bade him, Bring me a fat cow for the purpose of sacrifice. So he brought me the very cow, into which my wife had changed my concubine by her art. I tucked up my skirts, and, taking the knife in my hand, went up to the cow to slaughter her. But she lowered and moaned so piteously, that I was seized with wonder and compassion, and held my hand away from her, and said to the herd, Bring me another cow. Not so, cried my wife. Slaughter this one, for we have no finer nor fatter. So I went up to her again, but she cried out, and I left her, and ordered the herdsman to kill her and skin her. So he killed her and flayed her, but found on her neither flesh nor flesh, only skin and bone. And I was sorry for having slain her, when repentance availed me not. And I gave her to the herd, and said to him, Bring me a fat calf. So he brought me my son in the guise of a calf. When he saw me, he broke his halter, and came up to me, and fawned on me, and moaned and wept, till I took pity on him, and said to the man, Bring me a cow, and let this calf go.
1: But my wife cried out
0: at me, and said, Not so. Thou must sacrifice this calf, and none other to-day, for it is a holy and blessed day, on which it behooves us to offer up none but a good thing, we have no calf fatter or finer than this one. Quoth I, Look at the condition of the cow I slaughtered by thine order. We were deceived in her, and now I will not be persuaded by thee to slay this calf this time. By the great God, the compassionate, the merciful, answered she, thou must without fail sacrifice this calf on this holy day, else thou art no longer my husband, nor am I thy wife. When I heard this harsh speech from her, I went up to the calf, knowing not what she aimed at, and took the knife in my hand. O Lord of the kings of the Jinn. As I was about to kill the calf, my heart failed me, and I said to the herdsman, Keep this calf with the rest of the cattle. So he took it away and went away. Next day the herd came to me, as I was sitting by myself, and said to me, O my lord, I have that to tell thee, will rejoice thee, and I claim reward for good news. Quoth I, it is well." And he said, O merchant, I have a daughter, who learnt the art of magic in her youth, from an old woman who lived with us. And yesterday, when I took home the calf that thou gavest me, she looked at it, and veiled her face, and fell a-weeping. Then she laughed and said to me, O oh, my father, am I become of so little account in thine eyes, that thou bringest in to me strange men. Where are the strange men? asked I. And why dost thou weep and laugh? Quoth she, The calf thou hast there is our master's son, who has been enchanted, as well as his mother, by his father's wife. This is why I laughed and I wept for his mother, because his father slaughtered her. I wondered exceedingly at this, and the day had no sooner broken than I came to tell thee. When I heard the herdsman's story, O genie, I went out with him, drunken without wine for stress of joy and gladness, and accompanied him to his house, where his daughter welcomed me and kissed my hand, and the calf came up to me and fawned on me. Said I to the girl, Is it true what I hear of this calf? Yes, O my lord, answered she, this is indeed thy son, and the darling of thy heart. So I said to her, O damsel, if thou wilt release him, all that is under thy father's hand of beasts and goods shall be thine. But she smiled and said, O my lord, I care not for wealth, but I will do what thou desirest upon two conditions, the first that thou marry me to this thy son the second that thou permit me to bewitch the sorceress and imprison her in the shape of a beast else I shall not be safe from her craft i answered besides what thou seekest thou shalt have all that is under thy father's hand and as to my wife it shall be lawful to thee to shed her blood if thou wilt when she heard this she took a cup full of water and conjured over it then sprinkled the calf with the water saying if thou be a calf by the creation of the almighty abide in that form, and change not. But if thou be enchanted, return to thine original form, with the permission of God, the Most High. With that he shook and became a man, and fell upon him, and said to him, For God's sake, tell me what my wife did with thee and thy mother. So he told me what had befallen them, and I said to him, O oh, my son, God has sent thee one to deliver and avenge thee. Then I married him to the herdsman's daughter and she transformed my wife into this gazelle saying to me, I have given her this graceful form for thy sake that thou mayest look on her without aversion. She dwelt with us days and nights and nights and days till God took her to himself and after her death my son set out on a journey to the land of Inn which is this merchant's native country and after a while I took the gazelle and travelled with her from place to place seeking news of my son, till chance led me to this garden, where I found this merchant sitting and weeping, and this is my story. Quoth the genie, This is indeed a rare story, and I remit to thee a third part of his blood. Then came forward the second old man, he of the two greyhounds, and said to the genie, I will tell thee my story with these two dogs, and if thou find it still rarer and more marvellous, Do thou remit to me another third part of his blood? quoth the genie, I agree to this. Then the second old man, know, O lord of the kings of Jinn, that these two dogs are my elder brothers. The father died and left us three thousand diners, and I opened a shop that I might buy and sell therein, and my father's city to the like. But before long my eldest brother sold his stock for a thousand diners, and bought goods and merchandise, and was setting out on his travels absent for a whole year. One day, as I was sitting in my shop, a beggar stopped before me, and I said to him, God assist thee. But he said to me weeping, dost thou not recognize me? I took note of him, and behold, it was my brother. So I rose and welcomed him, and made him sit down by me, and inquired how he came in such a case. But he answered, Do not ask me. My wealth is wasted, and fortune has turned her back on me. Then I carried him to the bath, and clad him in one of my suits, and took him to live with me. Moreover, I cast up my accounts, and found that I had made a thousand diners profit, so that my capital is now two thousand diners. I divided this between my brother and myself, saying to him, Put it that thou hast never travelled nor been abroad. He took it gladly, and opened a shop with it. Presently my second brother arose like the first, and sold his goods and all that belonged to him, and determined to travel. We would have dissuaded him, but he would not be dissuaded, and bought merchandise with which he set out for his travels, and we saw no more of him for a whole year, at the end of which time he came to us, as had done his older brother, and I said to him, O oh, my brother, did I not counsel thee now to travel? And he wept and said, O oh, my brother, it was decreed, and behold, I am poor, without a diary or shirt to my back. I carried him to the bath, and clad him in a new suit of my own, and brought him back to my shop, where we ate and drank together, after which I said to him, O my brother, I will make up the accounts of my shop, as is my wont once a year, and the increase shall be between thee and me. So I arose and took stock, and found that I was worth two thousand dollars increase, in excess of capital, wherefore I praised the divine creator, and gave my brother a thousand diners, with which he opened a shop. In this situation we remained for some time, till one day. My brothers came to me, and would have me go on a voyage with them. But I refused, and said to them, What did your travels profit you, that I should look to profit by the same venture? And I would not listen to them, so we abode in our shops, buying and selling, and every year they pressed me to travel, and I declined. Until six years elapsed. At last I yielded to their wishes, and said to them, Oh, my brothers, I will make a voyage with you, but first let me see what you are worth. So I looked into their affairs and found that they had nothing left, having wasted all their substance in eating and drinking and merry-making. However, I said not a word of reproach to them, but sold my stock and got in all I had and found I was worth six thousand diners. So I rejoiced and divided the sum into two equal parts and said to my brothers, these 3,000 diners are for you and me to trade with. The other 3,000 I buried, in case what befell them should befall me also, so that we might still have on our return, wherewithal to open our shops again. They were content, and I gave them each a 1,000 diners, and kept the like for myself. Then we provided ourselves with the necessary merchandise, and equipped ourselves for travel, and chartered a ship, which we freighted with our goods. After a month's voyage, we came to a city which we sold our goods at a profit of ten diners on every one, of prime cost. And as we were about to take ship again, we found on the beach a damsel in tattered clothes, who kissed my hand and said to me, O my lord, is there in thee kindness and charity? I will requite thee for them, quoth I. Indeed, I love to do courtesy and charity, but I will not be requited. And she said, O my lord. I beg thee to marry me, and clothe me, and take me back to thy country, for I give myself to thee, and treat me courteously, for indeed I am of those whom it behooves to use with kindness and consideration. And I will requite thee therefore. Do not let my condition prejudice thee. When I heard what she said, my heart inclined to her, that what God to whom belong, might and majesty, willed might come to pass. So I carried her with me, and clothed her, and spread her a goodly bed in the ship, and went in to her, and made much of her. Then we set sail again, and indeed my heart clove to her with a great love, and I left her not night nor day, and occupied myself with her to the exclusion of my brothers. Wherefore they were jealous of me, and envied me of my much substance. They looked upon it with covetous eyes and took counsel together to kill me and take my goods, saying, Let us kill our brother, and all will be ours. And Satan made this to seem good in their eyes. So they took me sleeping beside my wife, and lifted us both up, and threw us into the sea. When my wife awoke, she shook herself, and, becoming an aphrodite, took me up and carried me to an island, where she left me for a while. In the morning she returned and said to me, I have paid thee my debt, for it is I who bore thee up and out of the sea, and saved thee from death, by permission of God the Most High. Know that I am the jinn who believes in God and his apostle, whom God bless and preserve, and I saw thee and loved thee for God's sake. So I came to thee in the plight thou knowest of, and thou didst marry me, and now I have saved thee from drowning. But I am wroth with thy brothers, and, needs, must I kill them. When I heard her words, I wondered, and thanked her for what she had done, and begged her not to kill my brothers. Then I told her all that had passed between us, and she said, This very night I will fly to them, and sink their ship, and make an end of them. Go on thee, answered I. Do not do this, for the proverb says, O thou who dost good to those who do evil, let his deeds suffice the evil-doer. After all, these are my brothers. Quoth she, By Allah, I must kill them. And I besought her till she lifted me up and, flying away with me, set me down on the roof of my own house, where she left me. I went down and unlocked the doors, and brought out what I had hidden under the earth, and opened my shop, after I had saluted the folk and bought goods. At nightfall I returned home and found these two dogs tied up in the courtyard. And when they saw me, they came up to me and wept and fawned on me. At the same moment, my wife presented herself to me and said, These are thy brothers. Who has done this thing unto them? asked I, and she answered. I sent to my sister, who turned them into this form, and they shall not be delivered from this enchantment till after ten years. And then she left me, after telling me where to find her, and now, the ten years having expired, I was carrying the dogs to her, so that she might release them. I fell in with this merchant who acquainted me with what had befallen him, so I determined not to leave him till I saw what had passed between thee and him. This is my story. This is indeed a rare story, said the genie, and I remit to thee a third part of his blood and his crime. Then came forward the third old man, key of the mule, and said, "O oh, genie, I will tell thee a story still more astonishing than the two thou last heard and do thou remit to me the remainder of his blood and crime? The genie replied, It is well. So the third man said, Know, O sultan and chief of the jinn, that this mule was my wife. Some time ago I had occasion to travel, and was absent from her for a whole year. At the end of which time I returned home by night, and found my wife in bed with a slave, talking and laughing and toying and kissing and dallying. When she saw me, she made haste, and, "'took a mug of water and muttered over it, "'then came up to me and sprinkled me with water, saying, "'Leave this farm for that of a dog.' "'And immediately I became a dog. "'She drove me from the house, and I went out of the door, "'and ceased not running till I came to a butcher's shop, "'where I stopped and began to eat the bones. "'The butcher took me and carried me into his house, "'but when his daughter saw me, she veiled her face and said to her father, "'How is it that thou bringest a man into me?' Where is the man, asked he, and she replied, This dog is a man, whose wife has enchanted him, and I can release him. When her father heard this, he said, I conjure thee by Allah, O my daughter, release him. So she took a mug of water and muttered over it, and sprinkled a little bit of it on me, saying, Leave this shape and return to thy former one. And immediately I became a man again, and kissed her hand and begged her to enchant my wife as she enchanted me. So she gave me a little water, and said to me, When thou seest her asleep, sprinkle her with this water, and repeat the words thou hast heard me use, naming the shape thou wouldst have her take, and she will become whatever thou wishest. So I took the water, and returned home, and went in to my wife. I found her asleep, and sprinkled the water upon her, saying, Quit this form for that of a mule. And she at once became a mule, and this is she. Thou seest before thee, O sultan and chief of the kings of the jinn, And he said to the mule, Is it true? And she nodded her head and made signs, as who should say yes indeed. This is my history, and what befell me. You know, this tale actually highlights a little fear of mine, truth be told. I'd hate to be caught in a situation like the merchant. Accidents have consequences, and the thought that one could lead to someone out for my head. doesn't that anxiety hit everybody? Anyway. Honestly, I might just read another of these tales in a future episode. After all, this isn't the only one that's particularly creepy. <laughs> but, it's now time for our final story for the night, and if you haven't been keeping hydrated, consider this a moment to pause and get some water. You're all hydrated and promise you won't dehydrate on me? Excellent! Then allow me to reward you with our final story. Surely you're all aware of voodoo dolls and curses, yes? Well, what if I told you that there may just be some truth to the legends behind them? According to an article from a Massachusetts radio station, Fun 107, there may just be some candor after all. The first thing you need to know is that this is a true story. It's a story about voodoo, a story about three deaths that may have been caused by a curse, a story about a mysterious fish doll, black magic, and the havoc it wreaked on a south coast family. And once again, it's all true. I first came across this tale when working on my book, Haunted Objects, Stories of Ghosts on Your Shelf, which I co-authored with my friend Christopher Balzano. Another longtime friend, John Brightman of New England Paranormal Research, answered my call for stories of haunted or cursed items with a story that might be unbelievable to most. But to someone who understands the dark and mysterious nature of superstition on the South Coast, stories of the fantastic are not so uncommon. John was requested to come help a woman in Westport. We'll call her Amanda, and we'll change all the other names too, with paranormal activity that had been going on in her home which had been where she grew up with her mother, sister, and brother. All three had recently passed away, and the home had been plagued with the phenomena such as objects moving on their own and doors that would open and slam shut. Amanda saw a mist come up from the basement doorway, and her young granddaughter said that she saw her dead great-uncle Roger near the staircase. The home had previously belonged to Amanda's mother, Esther, who had lived into her 90s despite failing health. Also living with her in the home had been Amanda's brother Roger, who was in his 60s but was also quite ill himself. He had shouldered the burden of caring for Esther, even when the younger sister Vivian was also living there but refused to help with Esther's care. Roger was out of the house one day and Vivian saw her chance. She told her mother about how her brother wasn't going to get any better and that he may try to put her in a nursing home to rot and die. Vivian swore to Esther that she signed the house and everything else over to just her. She would see that Roger wouldn't remove her from her beloved home, and she could die there with dignity. She signed everything over to Vivian, including power of attorney. Well, Roger was furious when he found out. After all, he was the one sacrificing his time and apparently his own health to care for his mother. And on top of that, Vivian lied. Once Esther signed everything over to her, she had put her mother in a nursing home anyway and told Roger he had to get out of what was now her house. Esther died shortly thereafter, with no cause of death ever determined, according to medical records. Two months later, Vivian suffered a ruptured spleen and died unexpectedly. Roger gave into his own health problems a few months after that, and within a span of eight months, all three had died. Amanda inherited the house and everything in it. She wanted to sell it and be rid of the reminder of the family drama that she had to watch from the sidelines as while well, she was cleaning up the house that she discovered the altar. There was a small desk in Roger's room, with three or four candles placed across its surface. In the center was a strange box. Before he took ill, Roger was a successful commercial fisherman, and Amanda thought it might have been something he came across in his travels for work. The box is about eight inches long and four inches wide, and almost looks like a jewelry box. Inside was a stuffed toy that appeared to resemble a fish, even though it was old and faded. Attached to it were three photographs, two of which were of people she instantly recognized. Her sister, Vivian, and her mother, Esther. Little stick pins had been inserted into the doll in various positions, making it resemble a voodoo doll. There was also a photo of a man she did not recognize. Also in the box were extra pins, some dried herb she thinks might have been sage, and mysterious oils and ointments with no labels. It looked like many of the items were quite old, and perhaps this was something Roger had been practicing for many years. Although Amanda had no way of knowing, Roger's work as a commercial fisherman brought him in contact with people of various cultures around the world. Sailing out of New Bedford, he worked alongside many seamen from Portugal and Brazil. In Brazilian culture, there is a form of black magic known as macumba. Is it possible that Roger learned this version of Brazilian voodoo from one of his fellow fishermen? Macumba rituals are often used to seek revenge on family members who have done harm, and the rituals often involve utilizing a photograph of the person you want to inflict the dark magic upon. For that reason, many superstitious Brazilians will not allow a photograph of themselves to be given to someone they don't know. So it's no surprise that after she discovered the altar, Amanda's house was plagued with paranormal activity. Amanda hired a medium to come in and possibly help any restless spirits move on from the house, and to help remove any bad vibes brought about by her brother practicing voodoo in the house. The medium explained that the pins that were stuck into the fish doll were arranged in a way that would inflict pain on the intended target. Without knowing about Vivian or how she died, she pointed out that one of the pins appeared to be placed in what would represent the spleen. A shiver went down Amanda's spine. The medium also told Amanda that if they took the box with the doll from the altar and buried it in the yard, the hauntings would stop it didn't take, which is why she later brought in John and his paranormal group. They came in and investigated for over 9 hours, but captured no signs of paranormal activity themselves. They even dug up the box and the doll in the hopes that bringing it back into the house would lead to activity, but nothing happened. John believes it's because the haunting was only meant for the family. The mystery also remained as to who the man was in the third photograph stuck to the fish doll. Speculation is that it could have been a partner in the fishing business that wronged Roger in some way. That might even explain why the doll was in the shape of a fish. When the box was removed from the property, John took it into his own possession, before eventually turning it over to the legendary paranormal researcher and haunted collector star John Zaffis. All the strange activity reached an abrupt end. A sense of peace that had been missing from the home for many decades once again filled its rooms the curse apparently lifted. They say you can't claim coincidence as fact, but when it's that many right in a row, it's truly difficult to say otherwise. I can certainly understand what would drive a person to use such dark magic against their own family, but I also can't condone such actions. Your family is chosen, no matter what anyone else tells you. Family is meant to be there for you when you're weak and the mere fact that people still, to this day, are abusing the elderly in their own family. There's a place in hell for those people, I assure you. Sorry, where was I? Ah, yes. Curses are no joking matter, I would know. I'm a demoness of misfortune, after all. But, to discover a family secret that heavy, I can't imagine what that must have been like. At least... The ghosts connected to the doll were able to properly move on. Although speaking of the end, that's right. We've unfortunately reached the end of this week's episode. I am always accepting scary story submissions, whether they be of a personal nature or just one that you found online. Just email them to luckymisfortune at gmail.com. That's L-U-C-K-Y-M-S-F-O-R-T-U-N-E at Gmail or at me on any of my socials, located in the description box. Remember, once we hit 500 of you little fandoms, I'll be sharing one of my very own personal ghost stories, and trust me, you won't want to miss out. So please subscribe, follow, add, or whatever it is that the platform it is that you're listening in on, unless you do, yeah? Oh, and for those that are able and want to help fund this project... You can find links to my OnlyFans, Patreon, and coffee in the description as well. Thank you so much for listening, darlings. Now don't forget to drink plenty of water, get plenty of rest, and you might want to check under your bed. The darkness grows there. Good night. Mwah.